Good morning. How's everybody? Did you have a good night last night? Who, who stayed up to midnight, after midnight? Really? That's why you weren't here at 9 o'clock. That's, <laughs> hey, I made it to 10 o'clock. That's good for me. 10 o'clock, that's midnight for me. Um, so I, I, I woke up actually a few minutes before 12, and I was wondering, I wonder if I'm going to hear firecrackers or anything. And, and I didn't hear anything. I was kind of disappointed. You know. But um, so here we are, day number one of a new year, 2012. And let, me, let me ask anybody curious about what, you know, did you ever wonder, like, what's this next year going to bring, you know, like, in my own life, in the world? So I, you know, <clears throat> the good thing is that there was a movie out last year that gives us the answer. Any guesses to the title of the movie? 2012. So I just thought, you know, it'd be good to give you a little visual of what we got to look forward to, all right? And forgive me for this, okay? I'm, okay. This mass suicide is here to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year. This year. This year. I just want to give some of your parents a, a teaching moment right now. He's just kidding. You know, you can go ahead and if, you have, if I'm in trouble with any parent right now, forgive me again. So that, that all comes from the Mayan calendar. That's what that movie was based on. And uh, so what it's basically telling us that what we have to look forward this year to is the end of everything. Okay? And it all comes down on December 21, which is a little bit disappointing to me. Because Becky and I have been looking forward to celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary on December 22nd. <laughs> so I don't know. It's going to really mess with, with that day, you know. And I think it has the potential of taking all the joy out of our, out of our 40th. So, and... <clears throat> By the way, I don't know if the guys were able to do this. We just got this from somebody in between. What really happened with that Mayan calendar? Were we able to do that, that comic? I only had enough room to go up to 2012. <laughs> ha, that'll freak somebody out someday. So. Anyway, that's why I always tell you, read the comics. You know, you learn a lot. So, now, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I actually watched, well... Let's use another word. Wasted two hours and 38 minutes watching that movie. 
You know, I did. And now, at least I did it at home, okay? So I didn't waste any money. And, and, and I would just say, you know, that is, that is the downside of being into sci-fi. Sometimes you set yourself up for a really dumb movie. You know, now Becky would say, when has a sci-fi movie not been dumb? You know, that, that's her opinion, okay, of that. Now, let me just say, it's very likely, it's pretty much a sure bet that we're not going to experience what that movie says we're going to experience in 2012. But I'll bet, I'll, but you know what, though? It's likely that we're all going to face more than a few joy stealers in 2012. Whether it comes in the form of another person who's really good at stealing other people's joy, anybody ever meet anybody like that, or some event or circumstance that you and I just did not expect that happens in our life that can easily suck the joy out of our lives. It's interesting, though, when you think about it. How much of what we experience in life, how true it is that our level of joy really isn't related to people and circumstances as much as it's related to how we respond to those circumstances or to those people. It's really about our attitude. It's about our perspective. There are some people who just simply choose to go through life uh, seeing everything in a negative way. They're critical, they're pessimistic, it doesn't matter what happens, it's just the way they, they view life. Life can be about as good as it gets and they just all, they're always griping. Anybody met anyone like that? In contrast, are those people who choose to have a positive view of life. And in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, they've got this amazing attitude where where they're, they're looking for the good that can come out of it, and good that can be done in them, good that can be done for other people. They, they even see other, you know, they even see joy stealers that way, where they say, well, you know, you know yeah, that's pretty lousy what they're doing, but maybe there's something I can, I can learn from it. I'm guessing we all know both kinds of people. The person who goes negative all the time, who always finds something to complain about, and the person who chooses to be positive, who's grateful for what life's given them, even when what they've been given seems to be more bad than, than good. We ended last year with a series on the family called Matters of the Heart. And as I was putting this sermon together and looking at this passage of Scripture that we come to this morning, I thought, you know, there is probably... In the, Few matters of the heart more important than this and what we can do for our children by, by the attitude that we have, the perspective we have in life, how we, how we respond to circumstances, the things that can steal our, steal our joy. And I think of my own mom. And some of you know that my mom uh, suffered physically most of her life from a very, very crippling form of arthritis. Anybody who, would know, who knew her, uh, knew her well, would know that this lady lived with pain every single day of most of her life, starting out as a nine-year-old child. And anybody looking at, at her could easily have said that she had, you know, she had every right to be as negative as anybody you know, could be, you know, but that's not what she chose. 
what she modeled for me and each one of my, you know, my siblings is that she, she chose instead to have, to face everything that came her way without complaining. I mean it. She really did not. And instead to be grateful for and find joy in everything in life that she could find joy in. And so that was a, that was a huge thing she modeled for all of us. The truth is, everybody, if I'm convinced that the difference between whether I experience joy or don't experience joy, if the difference, you know, that makes me a joyful person or not a joyful person is dependent on my circumstances or how other people treat me. If I'm convinced of that, it's very likely that I'm going to have very, very few joyful days. It's very unlikely that I'm going to be a joyful person. But if I believe that it's really about my attitude, my perspective, how I choose to what life, to, uh, to how I choose to respond to what life gives me, it's, it's then that I'm going to experience a life of joy. And if I can be as bold as to say this, on this first day of a new year, I think this is one of the most important things for us to get settled within ourselves. And I, I, I believe that if we do, it'll make all the difference on the depth of our joy, the level of our joy for the next 364 days. 37 years ago, during my second year in seminary, I decided to preach my first ever in my whole life, series of sermons from the New Testament book of Philippians. And I did this in a class on preaching where, where we would all take turns as students to a group of, you know, maybe 15, 16, 17 students in a class with a professor sitting in the, pack, in, in the back writing notes. We would take turns preaching. That's, that's how, I, how I began preaching. And I, I, I started out with with the book of Philippians. And I can't remember why I chose this book. But I do remember learning then how much Paul wrote about joy in his letter to these believers living in Philippi. Joy in his own life and joy that's possible for every person who was going to receive his letter. And for us today, joy that's possible for every, every one of us. And What's so remarkable about this and what impressed me 37 years ago is that Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. 16 times in, in, in four short chapters, Paul writes about his joy and his rejoicing and he does this in a Roman prison, not knowing if he's going to live or if he's going to die. And what we're going to see today and throughout this series is how it was possible for Paul to have so much joy when it would seem that he didn't have a reason in the world to be joyful about anything. And as we get into this letter, we're going to see that there's several reasons that Paul was somebody who was filled with joy. But here's what's so important to understand about his joy. This is so important, everybody. It's the number one reason. And he was a guy who was filled with joy. In fact, it's the reason that's underlying every other reason for his joy and why we're calling this series in Philippians what we're calling it. We're calling it white hot. It's a two-word phrase that's used most often to describe a piece of coal or metal that's as hot as it can possibly be. Read through Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
And you realize that it's written by a man whose love for Jesus Christ is best described with those two words. It's white hot. It's all out. It's passionate. And friends, what you and I got to understand is that this is the number one reason for his joy in the most difficult of circumstances. So we're in chapter 1 this morning. In the first 11 verses, and there, what I discovered is that there's two Two parts to these 11 verses. In verses 1 and 2, we learn something that's good to know about Paul, the person who wrote this letter, and the people receiving. Good to know because what was true for them can be true for each one of us. And that's part one. And in verses 3 through 11, we discover what Paul prayed when he prayed for the men and women receiving his letter. And that's part two. And so we're going to look at part one and part two and begin with part one. The truth about Paul, the truth about the believers in Philippi, and what can be true for every one of us. So chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, we read this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just... Can I just say this right now because I'm feeling it? Man, I love this church. <laughs> I'm so grateful for all of you. I mean, I mean, I just, I'm reading scripture and I'm thinking this at the same time. I'm just so grateful. It's in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts that we learn how it was that Paul connected with the people living in the city of Philippi. He's what, he, was, he was on what's described as, as his second missionary journey, and he has three men traveling with him. He, he has Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He has a man by the name of Silas, and then he has Timothy, who he included in verse 1 in the description that he gave of himself. And, and what, what was happening was that they were headed to Asia when the Spirit of God redirected them to go to Macedonia, and they end up in Philippi where it didn't take long before the impact of Paul's presence in the city with people coming to faith in Jesus Christ led to strong opposition. And the result of this is that Paul and Silas are arrested and they're thrown into prison. The, uh, the 16th chapter of the book of Acts is one reason you want to read the book of Acts if you've never read it. It's a great chapter. There's this earthquake. The prison's literally torn apart so that every prisoner could escape. But Paul and Silas, they, they stay. They don't go in anywhere. And the end result of this is the jailer takes them home to his house for dinner. They talk to this guy about Jesus Christ. He ends up becoming a believer it's with him and along with his family. It's just a great story. It's just it's Paul at his best. One of my favorite statements in this chapter tells us what Paul and Silas were doing just before the earthquake. Luke, Luke wrote this in, in verse 25. He said, he writes, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And then I love the, other, the, the end of it. It says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I was praying and praising God. Read that 16th chapter of Acts, and you know that they did this after being severely beaten. And they're doing it in chains in the deepest, darkest part of the prison. 
Even with this, Paul is worshiping God. He's praising God. This is his response to the situation he now finds himself in. He's not in despair. He's not complaining. Why does this always have to happen to me? It's not fair. He's not saying, where's God in all of this? He's, he's worshiping God. I mean, how does someone do this? I mean, r- r- Really? Right? I mean, getting real? I mean, how is it possible to respond this way? How, how is it that he prayed and he sang hymns to God? You know how I think it is? He did this because he was convinced that it wasn't about him. It was all about God, which takes us back to the first verse of Philippians chapter 1, where, where Paul wrote this about himself and Timothy. He said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You know, I, I guess it's okay that the, the translators that translated the Greek into the NIV said servant, servants of Jesus Christ. I, I, I guess it's okay that they said that, but I don't think they, I don't think they translated that with the strongest word because the, 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 the word in Greek is much closer to the word slave. Paul is calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He wasn't doing this to sound spiritual. He wasn't doing it to be spiritually correct. He wasn't saying this to impress anybody. He said it because it's meant, he meant it. It's how he saw his life. It was his perspective on life. It's the grid through which he filtered everything that happened to him. And I tell you what, everybody, living in the first century in the Roman Empire where slavery was common, Paul knew exactly what it meant for a person to be someone else's slave. He understood that whatever the master wanted, the slave did. He knew that it was all about the master. It was never about the slave. So when Paul described himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he meant. Whatever Jesus wanted, he did. Whatever was important to Jesus was important to him. And so Paul's saying, you know what? If it means getting beat up and put in prison, if that's what it takes to do what Christ wants me to do, I'm grateful for the privilege. And that's why he was worshiping God. That's why he was singing hymns. And everything else that follows in this letter, every time Paul mentions his joy, it all comes down to living with this perspective on life. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be white hot in our devotion to Christ. And the thing you and I must not make the mistake of doing this morning is saying to ourselves, well, that was Paul. You know, Paul, he was just a spiritual giant. Paul could do it. You know what? We can all do it. Because we all have the same Holy Spirit living in us that lived in the Apostle Paul. So what we got to do at the beginning of this year is not sell ourselves short. We can all be white hot. And our devotion to Christ. In fact, I, I think that's what Paul, his next point, when he said this about the people he wrote the letter to. He said, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Here's what to remember about this. A saint is not a super Christian. A saint is a Christian. The word literally means to be set apart. It defines what it means to be 
a follower of Christ, that we're set apart from the world and we're set apart to Jesus Christ. I think it's another way of saying what Paul said about himself. A saint is a slave of Jesus Christ. This is sainthood at its best. It's white-hot devotion to Christ. And I'm convinced it can be true for all of us. I'm convinced it's the way each one of us should see our life as we begin this year, 2012, that we want, we want to be us. We want to live like a saint. We want to be white hot in our devotion to Jesus Christ. We want to be slaves of Jesus Christ. I know, do I hear like maybe an amen? Huh? I understand. Okay. And this is why he prayed what he prayed. Which brings us to the part two. Verse 3. Paul's prayer, I think, for white-hot devotion. Verse 3, he said, I, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The, the first thing that impresses me about what Paul just said there is what he doesn't do and what he doesn't say. He doesn't complain and he doesn't say, pray that God gets me out of here. You know? It's just not there. I love this. He's in a Roman prison waiting to find out if he's going to live or die. And he prays, and in his prayer, he's thanking God. He's, he's praying with joy. You know how he did this? He did it because of his mission in life, what he saw his life was all about. That his whole reason for living was to see lives transformed for eternity. This is what gave him joy. And this is why he prayed what he prayed when he thought about these believers in Philippi. It, it gave him incredible joy to know that they were his partakers in bringing the gospel to others and to know that what God began in them, God was going to complete it. It just fired him up. It just fired him up thinking about what God was doing in and through the lives of these people. He's white hot in his devotion to Christ and what keeps igniting the passion in him is knowing that what God started in the Philippians, God would finish. It end up becoming exactly, exactly what God wanted them to be. You know, you know everybody... Um, one of life's greatest joy stealers is fear. Wouldn't you agree? Fear. Fear of what could go wrong in, in our own life, in our spiritual life, what could go wrong in the lives of those we love. What impresses me in these verses is Paul's complete absence of fear. And it's because of his trust in God. Trust in God to do everything that's needed to accomplish exactly what God wanted to accomplish in his own life and in the lives of the Philippians. I mean, look at that statement again in verse 6. I mean, it's just a great statement. He said, he said, I'm confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
early last year when I decided to do a, a series of sermons. First from Ephesians, which we did last year, titled Masterpiece. And then now Philippians, and, and then after, after Philippians, Colossians. Back last year, February, March, when I decided to do this, I had, I had no idea that our son Greg would die in September. And so in the plan of all of this, and the, when we were going to preach Philippians, Philippians was going to begin at the, this Sunday, the beginning of this year. And so I began working on, the, on this sermon, these first 11 verses, before Beck and I went to Seattle to, to have Christmas with our daughter Nikki. And as, as I worked on the sermon before Christmas, and then when we came back, I, I worked on it this last week. And I, I'm just going to be real with all of you right now, okay? As I knew that, I was going to be standing up in front of you and introducing the sermon the way I did, talking about joy and, and you know, making the statements that I was going to say. i got to tell everybody, all last week and the week before Christmas and right up until yesterday morning at a specific time, I was just struggling with how I was going to get up here. And I was going to talk about joy when my heart is breaking with grief. Anybody who's ever been in the situation Becky and I are in right now, and Nikki are in, Christmas for us, boy, Nikki, I tell you what, one of those times you just could be so proud of your child. She just did everything she could to make Christmas Eve special, a time to treasure for us as a family. I mean, she just did it. But there were a lot of tears that night. And what I can tell you this morning is, as I unpack this for you, is I, don't, I, I, I am realizing, like I never did before, that there is no contradiction between, and you can go through this exactly at the same time, and I'll explain how right now. There's no contradiction between going through heartbreaking grief and at, this, at, at the same moment that you can be filled with absolute joy. Because that's been my experience. And so I wondered how I was going to get up here. And then yesterday morning, um, it's like I, 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 in my personal time, one of the things I did was I thought, you know, I'm just going to, since I'm preaching Philippians, I'm going to go to the office in a, in a little bit and work on, on the sermon some more. And, and I probably should just read the passage here this morning as my own personal devotion. And, and it was like, Wow. Verse 6, yeah, this is how I can stand up in front of everybody and have joy. Because I can apply verse 6 to my son. Where I can, I can read this, I can be confident of this, that God who began a good work in my son Greg, God will carry it on to completion. In fact, God's done it. God's done it. God just didn't wait till the return of his son, Jesus Christ. And then some of you know that, that I, I, um, I, I'm memorizing the book of Romans. And so 
yesterday morning, it was time to, to review Romans chapter 6. And, and so, I mean, I've, I've, I can't tell you the number of times I've repeated and repeated these verses, but, but yet yesterday it was like just totally fresh for me as I'm struggling with how I'm going to get up here and preach. Because I read this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I thought of my son. Greg right now is totally free from the power of sin and death. Greg right now is totally free to live for God forever. Nothing, nothing ever again limiting him. That's why I can stand up here this morning and yeah, my heart is breaking. But I have this incredible joy inside of myself. I have so much. I can totally understand Paul's joy. You know, but it's very, very personal. It's my son. We, we might wonder, why, why was it that Paul found so much joy in what was happening in the lives of the Philippians? I mean, why did he care? What, what did it matter to him? Well, he, it's like he's anticipating us asking the question because he goes right on in verse 7 and he said, it's, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The reason he gave Paul so much joy is that he loved these people. He loved them. See, God had done this amazing work of grace in Paul's life. Let me explain, just, just from this passage. He, he, he uses a word, he, he describes himself. He said, you know, he said, there are, I can be confirming, I can be defending the gospel. The word defending there is, is a, the Greek word from which we get our word apologetics. It, Paul was an apologist. Wherever he went, he was giving reasons for why, why it's legitimate for people to trust and believe in Jesus Christ as his son. And here's what's so great about this. Paul's love for the Philippians is one of the best defenses of the gospel. You see, there was a day when Paul would, would have hated these people. First of all, because they were Gentiles and he was a Jew. And second, because they had become followers of Christ. There was a day when Paul would never have said what he wrote in, in verse 8. None of it would have come from his lips. The statement, you know, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul once hated Jesus Christ. Paul once did everything to persecute and kill those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And now, I mean, now he's saying that he loves these, he loves these Gentiles, he loves these believers with the love of Jesus Christ. That would never have come from his lips. If it weren't true that Jesus Christ had died and rose from the dead and Paul had come to understand that and believe it. Which brings us to Paul's prayer that he prayed for these believers and a prayer that you and I can pray for ourselves and 
We can pray for one another. In verse 9, he said, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and, and, and may be pure and blameless unto the day of, of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Boy, if you ever wonder, you know, what should I pray? What should I pray in 2012? What? This, you got a good one right here. And, and the thing about this prayer that Paul was praying is he wasn't simply praying that these people would love more. He wasn't praying that their love would keep on increasing. It wasn't, it wasn't that simple. He, he, was, he was praying for them to have a certain kind of love. He, he was praying for them that, that they would have a love that, that is guided by the wisdom of God's word, that's guided by what is true and, and by what is right. You see, he's praying for them to love with greater wisdom. And, and, and he prays this for a specific purpose. He, he states it right there in verse 10 and 11. He said, I'm praying this, that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He said, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless unto the day of Christ, filled, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's what's so true about life, everybody. There are countless decisions we make where it's not a question of choosing between right and wrong. Many times it's choosing what's best from a number of good options. And so often then, what you and I need is exactly what Paul is praying for. And that is the extraordinary, the supernatural discernment that helps us see how things differ. And then making the best possible choice. It's choosing the best of the best. And so really what it is, it's, it's praying that we'll have a love for Jesus Christ by the choices that we make, a love that's white hot. Not just lukewarm, not just a little warm, not mildly hot, but white hot, where we go for the best of the best of the best of the best that we possibly can in serving Jesus Christ. Boy, isn't it true we begin every year hoping for the best? And we begin every year hoping that there'll be some real joy in that year. I'm going to go back to where I started. It's a sure thing that we're all going to experience some joy stealers in the next 364 days. It, could, it, it might be the circumstances of our life. It, it might be people who come into our life. And so I, I would just put this in front of all of us this morning. I think it'd be very wise for us to pray this prayer for ourselves, for one another, and very wise for us to say, you know what? I want Jesus Christ to be front and center in my life. I want to be white hot in my love for him. So let me pray this prayer as we step into communion, all right? This is, let me pray Paul's prayer for us. Father, for all of us this morning, I would ask that your love, our love, God, 
will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Father, so that we will be able to discern what is best and that we will be pure and blameless unto the day of Jesus Christ. And God, that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that we know comes only through your, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. His righteousness in us. And Father, all to your praise, all to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.